Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Eric Kleinsmith, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Hey, thank you for having me, Paul. Appreciate it. Yeah, I guess I should mention you and I connected through Pete A. Turner. Yes. And I guess I should emphasize the A because that makes him uh, unique. Right, right. Well, yeah. Pete uh, Pete and I go back, I think, 25 years now. 20. Good Lord. it's It's been a long time since uh, Bosnia, so 26 years. There we go. Yeah, uh, Bosnia, late 90s. Was Did you enjoy that tour? Uh, I I did, except that it was a more of a culture shock for me because up until that time, my entire time in the Army had been in combat arms units. So I started as a an, an M1 tank platoon leader in Fort Carson, Colorado, uh, did, did two years of that, and then in the same battalion was the battalion scout platoon leader, and it was open top, 10 open top Humvees, no doors, no windshields, no tops, you know, total desert rats, you know, which is great in the desert, but uh, in, in the mountains of Colorado and the, you know, in the, it's just totally different atmosphere when it's snowing on you. But the, uh, and then even, and even after I switched from an armor to intelligence, uh, I went straight back to an infantry battalion and what did was uh, the Intel officer for one, uh, first battalion, six infantry, and then third brigade, three ID and, um, uh, Vilsec, Germany. So I went, when I joined the unit in Bosnia uh, to take command of the counterintelligence company, it was my first Intel unit and it was a complete culture shock to me. And you were a commander. Yes. Oh, <laughs> yes. man. Hey, yeah. company, company command is uh, enough of a shock, but uh, yeah, that, that right. characters in that unit, I can right. really imagine. Well, I mean, it's, you know, and, and I know folks from the military, it's like if, if you've ever had to command over 20 warrant officers, you know what you, you know what you're dealing with. And there's some folks like, man, I can't even deal with one. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so. that, that's a, that number of ward officers is equivalent to like uh, 13 CSM. O- o- over four of them is considered a conspiracy by definition. So <laughs> absolutely, okay. I don't think I've been in the presence of more than three or four at any given time. Oh my gosh, it's 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 like herding cats. And, and you know, and, there, and the thing is, is there's two types. What I found is. There's there's warrant officers who just from a personality standpoint, I mean, they're all professionals. I never I had 15, uh, 15 months in command. I never gave out uh, a single uh, UCMJ or, or a non-judicial punishment to anybody. I mean, because they're all counterintelligence agents, interrogators and linguists. So, um, you know, in the same battalion was our long range recon airborne infantry, you know, ranger guys. They had a a. a a fish jar full of rank that they were taking from their troops that the, the commander was. And I actually had to go on assignment with the other company commander, a friend of mine, Dennis Sullivan, that they made me go to the JAG office to visit him, at, you know, for one of his visits for him. And, and I walked in and he's like, who are you? The, the, you know, the lawyer's like, who are you? And he's like, this is, this is Eric. This is the other company commander of that battalion. He goes, how come I've never seen you? It's like, because you've got in, airborne infantry guys, Versus counterintelligence agents, who's going to, you know, who's going to cause, you know, who's going to wreck their career by, you know, keeping a goat in their room or whatever these guys were doing. Yeah, a lot of your guys, I imagine, had some serious intent when they enjoyed the joined the military. Yeah. They knew what they wanted to do. Right. A right. lot of those airborne infantry guys right. uh, flying by the seat of their pants. Right. So, so yeah, so my warrant officers, they, a lot of them from a personality standpoint, they, 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 I looked at, you know, I dealt with them either like they used to be NCOs. And they acted like NCOs, but then there was a group that they, they used to be specialists and they still acted like specialists. 
Yeah. And it just, and it just depends. It was, you know, personality, it was wildly personality driven. So that, that was more of a culture shock than anything for me. I, I, uh, I can't imagine taking that. Uh, <laughs> company. That's, uh, I, and it was in, it was the middle of operations. I mean, we, I took command in a, the town of Lukovac at a chemical factory and the very moment after I took command, we, we shut the whole operation down and moved to another base camp. Oh, wow. On, on the, on the first day. So it was, uh, you know, uh, you know, quite the, quite the operation just to, just to get things organized. Certainly not boring. No, not at all. So, uh, Eric, where'd you grow up? I was, uh, I grew up in Plymouth, Michigan. I was, um, uh, I'm the youngest of three, uh, three boys. Uh, my oldest brother is retired Marine Corps uh, officer, uh, lieutenant colonel, and he was involved in the Battle of Kafji in the first Gulf War. Uh, mm-hmm. He was one of the two observation posts from the uh, from the Anglico, which stands for Air Naval Gunfire Liaison uh, Company. He was one of the two uh, observation posts that was overrun by the Iraqi regiment when they when made the incursion into Kafji in Saudi Arabia. So he was listed as missing in action for about 16 hours. Um, but I think he had actually had credit for about 125 vehicle kills because he oh, was the one, yeah. he was the one calling for, he was, he was the last person to call for a fire from the USS Wisconsin uh, before it retired. And then uh, he had a couple of Cobra gunships that were watching his post. And most of the kills that they got were just guys that just, just got out of their vehicles and walked back, left, left yeah. the engines running. Um, my middle brother is uh, just retired after over 30 plus years in uniform division, secret service. Um, he is in the National Law Enforcement Hall of Fame mm. for, for both uh, taking on a riot single-handedly and then several life-saving awards. Uh, he's been in, the, in and around the, the streets of D.C. for his entire career, and he has probably seen more action, more violence, had active shooters targeting him um, than the majority of the folks that actually joined the military and do 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Um... I, I kind of want to explore what your brothers did, but uh, yeah. I'll, I'll save that for another time. Yeah. Well, we'll I mean, that's brothers. You, yeah. And so you, you get, you get, you know, the, you know, as we're, we're all cut of the same cloth and we, you know, my father was a teacher. Uh, he, he was in the army during the cold war. Uh, and, but he, he, uh, he left, he, he grew up in Monroe, Michigan. He actually was born in a house uh, on, I think on second street in Monroe. Uh, so he, he joined the army. He, um, you know, married my mom and uh, they, they did a tour in Germany, but he got out after five years and became a, a school teacher. And, and my mom became, was a school teacher as well in Plymouth, Michigan. So one of the um, things that I remember that, that my, my dad taught uh, the actor Tom Hulse in seventh grade English or social studies uh, for his middle school. And, and Tom Hulse, uh, he played Amadeus. He played in uh, Animal House. Um, his, his mom, you know, still lives there. There's his, his mom and my mom are still friends. Um, but it was that, it was that kind of a town. Plymouth was a very idyllic town for us to grow up in. Um, but my dad, one of the things about him is that he never joined an organization that did not have to do with the family. Uh, he was a very strong, and I was brought up as a, as a Christian scientist. Uh, so, um, right, right downtown Plymouth off of Ann Arbor Trail was the church. Um, the, um, uh, he was strong in the church. He was strong with uh, our local Indian guide tribe. And and the, the the guys that we had in our Indian guide tribe was several several families, several fathers and sons, uh, you know, sets of brothers. And we're all we all still 
we we're all still friends. We could all we, we all still could reach out to each other fifty some years later. Um, it, it's just it was that kind of uh, upbringing, and you know he and he was pressured you know he was pressured to try to join the Rotaries or the Kiwanis Club or whatever, and he just said I'm, and he even got some criticism. And I remember him t saying this is that he he was criticized that as at the time he was an elementary school principal. Uh, after uh, he had taught for a while. And, he's, and one of the things like, look, you're a community leader. You need to join these organizations. You need to contribute to society. And his answer was, I'm, I'm, I'm raising three boys. That's my contribution to society. Um, well, and, and he was an elementary school uh, principal. Right, right. So, and I still have uh, friends that, you know, went to his school while he was principal and they, and he was an assistant principal at a middle school first. So, but, so he had been in the school system for quite a long time. And what I mean by, you know, we had an idyllic life uh, growing up. It, we did some, you know, we you know we didn't have a lot of money. You know, our summer vacations were going to historical places and camping. We'd go camp at a KOA campground. You know, we dragged the camper. You know, poor mom had to put up with us. But you know, our summer vacations consisted of going to national parks. I think I went to every single Civil War battlefield and most of the American Revolutionary battlefields. Driving out of Michigan except for a handful like Vicksburg or something that was just too far away. That's just what we could afford. So that's what we did. Um, so the, the entire, you know, part of the East that, that was, you know, that was our summers uh, spending time doing that. But, and, and even in our, you know, we grew up in a, in a, in a, a decent neighborhood, but we had a lot that the backyard was so large that, you know, the first thing my dad did was make, was buy a, a, a wagon and i don't mean just like a regular uh you know wheelbarrow or or pulp a pulley wagon this was a a true life-size uh, pioneer wagon mm -hmm. with you know you know double axles metal wheels um you know a hitch for the horse the team of horses and then off of that he built a tower with you know a rope ladder and a trap door and everything and then the next thing he built was a fort in our backyard for us and what i mean by forts and you see a lot of the stuff in the catalogs today that's you know, you see these little four, five, five foot by five foot towers with a slide off of it. My dad used telephone poles for the corners of the fort. And it was roughly a 20 by 20 platform that had a tent over top of it, a trap door, and it's all sandbox down below. And then on the second level, he placed a crow's nest and it had to be, it was as tall as our house and our two story house. And, you know, there was no safety measures you know there was a we could slide down from a pole from there and there was you know you know the sandbox was massive but we just we were out there all summer all day in fact my my mom started throwing kids out of the out of the yard at certain hours she just couldn't take the you know having a dozen kids over every day so that was kind of our you know we had an above ground pool so we were constantly playing something something adventures either we were we were a civil war unit in our backyard. we my mom filmed the battle of Gettysburg. It was a reenactment when I was six. We, she did a re, you know, we were all civil war reenactors for in the backyard that summer. Uh, and that was like the, you know, summer of 71 or 72. Um, we then filmed the battle of Shiloh. Um, you know, it was just, we were just the, a, you know, we were very well known in, in, with the kids in the neighborhood. They could see, you know, what we had. So we had kids, you know, we had friends over all the time and we were constantly doing just some wild stuff. It was, and then, you know, dad would teach us, we even had the art of the Polish cannon, which we, you can't make anymore, but it was consisted of stacking tin cans up and firing, using lighter fluid in the bottom can and then firing tennis balls out of the cannon. 
you know, we had matches, we had fireworks, we had, you know, good Lord, it's it, uh, the, the cap guns, you know, all that kind of stuff that you could, you would never see in a, a kid's repertoire of mayhem, but we had it all. Uh, and so that's, you know, that was basically our, my childhood in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and look, uh, kids that grew up with a lot of money did not have the same kind of uh, childhood you right. had. I would argue your childhood was infinitely better than a rich kid's childhood. Oh, it was, it, it, it was amazing. And then, and we've, we did finally move to a, a larger house on the other side of the neighborhood. In fact, my dad hitched the wagon up to the car and dragged the wagon across town to our new house with this tower and everything else. I think it made the new, the local paper it was just quite the spectacle that this is, you know, this is what he was doing instead of just saying, I'll leave the, you know, they will leave it here. But, um, the, you know, and everything, you know, and my dad to, to, to make extra money as a teacher, he sold Kirby vacuums and then he taught swim lessons. So, and, and my mom would make us go to swim lessons with him. So we were in the pool all, you know, even in the winters all weekend, all the time. So we all swam for the high school. Uh, we all swam for the same coach, uh, uh, Chuck Olson, who's had to be one of the most fantastic um, role models and, and, and mentors I could ask for outside of my father. Um, and, you know, we, you know, we all swam together. There was one year, my freshman year in high school, we had seven sets of brothers on our team and we were the only three brothers that were swimming all at the same time. And the other swim coaches would come up and be like, yeah, look, you're cheating with your roster. You got this kid Kleinsmith swimming nine times, <laughs> you know, it's just, and, and every, you know, swim meet, he had to come up, he goes, come here, line up. This is the oldest. This is the, you know, the next one, this is the youngest. And, and he goes, if you don't believe him, go ask the announcer. Cause my dad was the announcer. I mean, it was that, that's what I mean by dad did everything for the family. Um, and I set all that up because in the summer of 1982, between my sophomore and junior year of high school, my dad was killed. Mm. And uh, he was he was uh, still a runner. He picked, you know, picked it up from the army and he would run out of our neighborhood, go down the dirt roads, do a, you know, a three mile loop. And a 17 year old girl who was putting makeup on at the time, mm. um, her car swerved over and hit him from behind and she was going about 40 miles an hour. So he was in a coma for three, three at least three weeks until he finally succumbed. And the, the life that I had came to an absolute screeching halt overnight. And it went from uh, my brother's, my, my oldest brother went to the university of Michigan. So he was a freshman. My, my middle brother was going to Eastern Michigan university. And it went from our family, you know, pretty much together in the house to overnight, my mom and I living alone in this massive house, yeah. um, you know, out, you know, out in a wooded neighborhood, which, you know, the neighbors were kind of were farther away than a normal neighborhood. Um, that was, I, I don't, that was probably the hard, I, I have never gone through a harder test since then. You know? Yeah. Uh, losing uh, an average father um, is one thing. and That's awful mm -hmm. and tragic, but losing somebody as involved as your dad was yeah. uh, and having two, yeah. your two older brothers not in the house most of the year. Right. Uh, that, that, uh, had to have changed you, I imagine. It, 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 it did. And it, it, it really tampered my outlook on, um, you know, it was a, it was a struggle and it was a, it was, it got to the point where it was a religious struggle for me, where I had to, you know, I, from my, my junior year in high school and, and senior year, I don't remember much other than it being dark the whole time. And, and part of it is, you know, it's Northern, it's Michigan. You know, it's it's you know between Detroit and Ann Arbor, but 
you know, when you swam after high school, you'd go to school in the dark, you'd swim after school, and then you come home in the dark. And, and that, and then you come home to a, a, you know, a relatively dark or quiet house with my mom there. And she, you know, so she, we all struggled differently and we all handled it differently. Um, I was, my mom was told that my, that her boys would never amount to anything uh, because dad was such a strong role model and that, and that, that we would, we would flounder somewhere in our life just in a horrible way. And she was just out, right out uh, told that by, you know, folks that knew her in the, in the town. Um, so it was that, that kind of thing that then changed. So that's one of the reasons why we all joined the military was that that was one part of our father's life that we wanted to get to, we wanted to know more about, and we wanted to model ourselves like him. I mean, when somebody passes, they always become, you know, if, if, if they, if you adored whoever you lost, they, they always become perfect after you, after you pass, you know, you don't, you don't remember the faults and that kind of thing, but with my dad, there were very few. Um, and that's, you know, and that's part of why, I mean, besides patriotism, a sense of adventure and, you know, all the other things that normal person has, that was the, the one driver that led us all to join the military. And, and, uh, again, whether it was Marine Corps or the army, uh, and that, um, or, you know, or anything else. And that, and we kept that, uh, even after we all left the military, we kept that some, some degree of service or idea of service through our whole lives. Uh, why army for you? Um, my big thing I wanted to do is I wanted to join, I did want to join the, uh, an intelligence officer. And I knew that from going through ROTC, I went to Purdue university. I, I, that was one thing is like, when I did go to college, I had to get out of the state. Um, I wanted to go someplace a little bit farther away, not, not, um, so, and Purdue was just a perfect university to do that. And I, and I adored my, you know, all the years I had, and I, and I struggled there with, with loneliness, depression, I had a lot of that, you know, to, to fight while I was there, but it was a great environment to, to do that in. But part of what, you know, I, I had always been, you know, I, I liked the, um, the combat arms aspect, the, uh, but I also liked the intelligence piece. And I, and I got to back up a little bit is we were also massive gamers and role players. Uh, we played Dungeons and Dragons. We played Tunnels and Trolls. We played uh, I, my, I played my first hex, you know, count hex and counter war game, true hard war game when I was eight. Um, you know, my brother received this, this Avalon Hill game called Gettysburg and it was, you know, it was squares and, and, and counters, but we quickly graduated and we're just voracious in what we bought. Like our friends that had them, we would game with them or we were always, we were always doing some sort of, you know, painting miniatures and playing Dungeons and Dragons. And so that kind of, um, critical thinking, that kind of war gaming stayed with me. So that was another reason of, of joining the military, but, but being an intelligence officer largely that, you know, I, I remember talking to my brigade commander after uh, doing a, a rotation at Hohenfels uh, in Germany, which is a training, a training area. And he said, you know, he goes, I, he goes, I got to tell you, he goes, you are really good at doing, at doing these templates on the enemy. Cause there was, there was a couple of times where I would write my uh, template of what, how I thought the enemy was going to attack us. And the folks that were running the exercise swapped out the actual graphics for mine because <laughs> they were so accurate. And they, and they let, they let the commander know that. And he goes, look, he goes, I, 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 he goes, I haven't run into anybody who, who can, who can nail these guys as good as you. And I said, like, I've been doing this since I've been eight years old. You're just paying me. And, yeah. And that's wow. That's uh, I've been around a lot of Intel guys and I, I've never heard of that. Yeah, that was, we were constantly doing that. I mean, there's, there was, you know, the, the, also the love of history. So, you know, being stationed in Germany, my wife and I were, 
um, we were out everywhere going, going to every places. We got to the point where we just stopped going to cathedrals. Like friends would come by. I was like, Hey, we want to go to the cathedral in Heidelberg. We want to go to the castle. I was like, ah, man, we'll just wait in the car. I mean, just, you know, we, we've been there so many times, but I dragged her to, uh, every, you know, as many battlefields as I could. Uh, my, my, my kids now call it dad's obscure tours. So now when I take, when we take our kids, when they were growing up, we, we would do something fun and we did, we saved up for years and we, we took our kids to Europe in 2013 and we went to all the touristy spots. You know, we did, um, uh, you know, showed them where we lived. We went to Nuremberg, we went to, uh, uh, Birch, we went to, um, New Schwanstein castle. We went, and then we drove all the way through Switzerland and Paris. And then all of a sudden it's time for dad to do his thing. So I took him out to, Bastogne, and I took him out to the village of Foy, and I took him to the woods outside of the village of Foy, and showed him the foxholes dug by the Band of Brothers because the foxholes were still there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I took him to Verdun. We, I made him go into Fort Duomo, uh, uh, into the into the, the catacombs below the fort, Fort Vaux, uh, touring that one. And so my my poor daughter's back in high school, and you know, she's got a history teacher saying, yes, and this is what happened during World War One. And you know, I'm sure none of you have been there. And she starts naming off all the places that she had been in high school. And, the, and she came home. She goes, my, my, he goes, my, my history teacher, you know, w w wants to know, <laughs> wants to know why you like history. So, <laughs> so uh, but that was it. It was, it was, a you know, doing, being an intelligence officer was a great fit. Uh, I had always had an idea of, of, you know, being young and naive of, of wanting to join an agency or wanting to join the FBI or something like that. And it just, you know, my path just took me in a different way. And, you know, I've, I've, I have no regrets on everything I did to include getting out of the army before retirement. I, I left the army at, um, uh, at 13 years uh, and 20 years as retirement. But I left as an army major and, you know, I, I, I fully believe that I received a sign from God that says, go do something else. And it, you know, so that took my career again, a different path as well. Would you end up doing right after you got out? Um, I became a, a contractor for a, a smaller company, a very small company called Cytex, which was then bought by a very tiny company called Lockheed Martin. Mm. Um, but I ran training for the Army uh, outside of the schoolhouse. And the Army does their intelligence training. If you're a, a new recruit or if you're going to the, you know, the, the large formal schools uh, like I had been, you go to Fort Huachuca, Arizona, which is uh, just uh, Sierra Vista, which is uh, an hour uh, east and south of uh, Tucson. Um, but outside of that, once you left uh, the schoolhouse and you joined your unit, there was not a lot of training available. And so when I, I turned around, I, I had done some consulting work, but I, I, I was sent into the uh, into my last duty station. You know, I knew the folks you know that I was going to see. Uh, at uh, Army U.S. Army Intelligence and Security Command on Fort Belvoir, Virginia, it's just south of D.C. And I brought, I asked, I put in a, an unsolicited proposal. I was like, "You, you seriously need a training program for these new data mining tools." And that's where you know my experience from the Able Danger program and some other, um, you know, the, the, my last job on active duty. Um, I was the the chief of intelligence for an organization called the Land Information Warfare Activity. It was a the DOD Army uh, Army and DOD's first data mining operation that was successful and and, and successfully running, uh, because in my experience doing that, I just after I left, I just turned right around and said, "You need people to teach you, to teach your analysts these tools, to teach your analysts how to do analysis during, with these tools, um, more than just here's the the what we call the buttonology or, or drive-by training where an engineer would come by and says, here's how you do this and this and this. All right, see you later.'" 
Um, and so the army, you know, uh, and allocated us a bunch of money. So I, I hired seven instructors uh, and we started work. And this was in 2002, shortly after 9-11. And by the time I, and I had, to, you know, I'll admit I, by 2015, I had reached burnout stage, but I had grown that program to 154 instructors. And we were teaching tens of thousands of soldiers every year on our course, on different courses, sending mobile training teams all over the place to include downrange, Iraq, Korea, um, uh, Kuwait. And we were, it got to that, it got to the point though, where it was just, it was getting, it was, it was too much for me to do. And I ran, and I ran the program for 13 years straight. Yeah. That's a long time. It sounds like, uh, well, growth is hard. Yeah. Uh, Growth can be fun, but growth is hard. Uh, I, I imagine you trained some of my soldiers. I, I, you know what? I, I, I trained, uh, I, I can't remember her name now, but Chelsea Manning, um, oh, yeah. Bradley Manning. I, yeah. I trained Bradley Manning. Um, we were joking about putting a picture up in our classroom saying he was our honor grad. Um, but I trained him on counterterrorism analysis. So one of the, that was one of the courses I personally taught and designed was a counterterrorism analysis course. Um, so that's, um, but again, it was, you know, we, I've had so many people go through there and that really became, you know, and, and I took that from, from, you know, to every job after, you know, the, the different jobs that I have after that, I, I took the, all that experience with me. Well, you mentioned able danger. Um, I imagine parts of able danger still classified there. There are, but not, I mean, I can talk, I mean, I can talk for days about it because I, I won't. I, I've talked about it enough that I won't I won't breach breach any class classified problems. All right. So what what I've read and I've not done uh, deep research certainly, and, and yeah. you were you were part of the able danger operation effectively before nine eleven. Um, and you tell me where I'm wrong here. Mm-hmm. We we knew uh, some of the bad guys, right? Yep. We we had identified at least three terror cells and we had names within those terror cells that were part of 9-11. Right. And right. you testified in front of Congress, right? Twice. Yeah, yeah, twice. They, um, this was a, uh, late in the November, 1999, we were approached by special operations command and they, they had heard of what we had done and we had already done some significant projects, uh, with, from a data mining standpoint, we had mapped out, how the Chinese and other uh, adversarial countries were stealing technology, classified technology from us. Uh, we had done such a great job that it made it that the that's that project alone had made its way up to Capitol Hill. And we were constantly sending people up to Capitol Hill to brief staffers and, and uh, congressmen and senators because we were showing essentially we had mapped out how the technology was being stolen. And the number of two, you know, the two different ways that we were showing them was they, it was being stolen before it was classified. So it was being stolen either at a, um, a multinational corporation that was doing a partnership with a third party and that third party has had no security and they were, and they were stealing the technology from them or it was being stolen from a university um, like the like the metallurgy we, we highlighted the metallurgy uh, department of Stanford University, which had I think 19 graduate students, of which 18 of the 19 were uh, Chinese nationals. One of the students was a Russian and he mysteriously had committed suicide halfway through the, the year that we were studying them. Um, the, the biggest problem, so, so we came to, uh, I mean, we came to the conclusion that we had so, you know, something very powerful that nobody in DOD had. And we were, 
able to do things faster and more and more efficient than a lot of the agencies because just the agencies had their very archaic way of doing business at the time. And then again, this is, you know, 1999, 2000. So special operations command had come to us. They said, we've been around to all the different agencies. We've been to the CIA, NSA, DIA. And we asked, we're asking them some very specific questions about how we can go after the Al Qaeda organization. And this was after the, um, Kobar Towers bombing, uh, the, um, attacks in Kenya and Tanzania. So they, they were building, you know, building cases up this, this, uh, trying to, uh, building a campaign for a while. And so we, you know, we gave them our brief, our capabilities and, and they, they invited us, they invited me personally down to a working group with all the members. So they had one, you know, somebody from every agency that, uh, and when I mean down, it was uh, at this, um, at a local office in the Northern Virginia area. I can't, I don't want to talk about where it is, but the, um, and so we, you know, they, I spent the morning listening to all these guys talk and the, you know, the official uh, Osama bin Laden biography said, hey, you know what, this guy's going to die of pancreatic cancer. There's really nothing to worry about. He's he's not really that much of a threat. And uh, the guy from Special Operations Command, you know, a guy named Commander Scott Philpott, he tapped my shoulder and said, hey, let me let me see what you guys can do. So I called back to uh, a warrant officer that I had that was uh, that was working it as well as a, a civilian and I just said, look, I need you to run this data. I need you to do a quick search. Uh, call me back. She goes, I'll send you something in 90 minutes. And so she sends me something. We essentially, within 90 minutes, they had mapped out kind of the major muscle groups of Al-Qaeda worldwide, the presence of Al-Qaeda worldwide. And we showed them these major areas. And of course, when we briefed it, that we had a lot of naysayers from the other agencies. It's just like, look, we, we know all this. You're not showing us anything that we, we don't know. And I was like, right but we started 90 minutes ago and we're already caught up that we've already have it. We've already has the, what we have called the, you know, the intelligence preparation of the battle space. We've already mapped them out because we're using data money tools and we had people and we had the right processes in place. We could do it faster and more efficient. And then we had a, a, a different start point. And that's when special operations command is like, all right, I'm going to go with you guys. Um, you know, you're it. And so I'm going to give you your first uh, requirement, uh, you know, first tasker. And, and the tasker was as broad as find Al Qaeda worldwide go. And that's what we did. And so we just started working. We, uh, we started uh, working the tools. We started building, uh, building association matrices and diagrams. We started putting charts together. Um, we started databasing and, and you know, today's standards, it doesn't seem like a lot, but we were pulling in about two and a half terabytes worth of data, um, straight data that we were pulling in. Well, we had mapped out major areas in Europe. We had mapped out major areas in, in Northern Africa, what's called the Maghreb Arab uh, portion of Northern Africa. We were finding, uh, obviously, connections to other, other terror groups in the Middle East, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Yemeni Islamic Jihad. Um, then we found ties to organizations in the Far East, the um, Abu Sayyaf, um, and Jamiah Islamiyah, two, two uh, groups out of the Philippines. Um, and so we were mapping these out. What really bothered us is we started finding places in the U.S. Uh, with hits. So we saw a hit in Florida. Then we saw the New Jersey. and wasn't the entire cell in New Jersey. We started coming up with names. What bothered me the most personally is that I saw a hit for the, the tool said there is some presence through connection A, B, and C in your hometown of Plymouth, Michigan. Mm. And that's when it kind of hit me. And it was, you know, and again, we didn't vet, we, we didn't have time to vet it. This was a, you know, mile wide, each inch deep type of a look. 
but when you're finding your, you know, places where you grew up, where there's probably a presence, and I think it was like a, a person that was associated with the, you know, through different degrees of separation that was using uh, funding for uh, was, was uh, helping to funnel fun, uh, money into the organization. The problem we ran into is because we were data mining, da data mining sucks up like a vacuum. And so we were bringing in information, <coughs> excuse me, that was also coming in with information about U.S. persons. For the military, it is illegal to deliberately collect on U.S. persons unless you have a, uh, you know, there's a specific set of rules that you have to follow. And there has to be a, a you know, a counterintelligence or purpose or a direct threat. And, um, but the problem was, is when you're, you're using these tools, it was collecting all that kind of information incidentally. And so the, the lawyers at DOD, you know, you know, somebody found out about it. And so they came down and they just, they, first they said, we're going to have a lawyer. We're going to slow the way you're doing business and we're going to make it so inefficient that you really can't even use the tools. And then they just came down and just said, all right, you're shut down until we can figure out what's going on. Well, one of the rules that regulations that we had to follow, even though it was written in 1987 or whatever, um, is we're only allowed to keep the data that we had collected for 90 days. So as the lawyers and the commanders and the directors and, you know, the chiefs, uh, you know, from between the Pentagon and, and uh, our organization were, were going back and forth, the 90 day mark hit and I was required to delete all the data that we had collected. And so I even had the lawyer come in, Tony Gentry is a friend of mine. He just, he, and he said it kind of jokingly, he's like, look, you, you need you need to delete all this data. Remember, or if you don't delete it by today, you're going to jail. And, you know, so we had some really deep moral, uh, you know, I, we talk about morals, we talk about doing the right thing in the army. We have, you know, there's, there's classes, there's training. I think that was one of the most difficult moral uh, moral problems that we had to face. And we came up with a decision or, eth you know, ethically, we had to delete it and we did. And it was horrible to do that because we had base camps in Afghanistan. We had locations in the US. I mean, it was, we were digging more and more into it to, to map these guys out and I deleted every piece. So Eric, what's the basis of the 90 day rule from the 87? What, if, you, if, if you're doing collection on a US person, whether it's incidental or not, you're only allowed to retain that data for 90 days until you can make a decision on on it that says this is viable to a legitimate investigation. Like you have certain, you know, certain uh, uh, articles on, on on criteria on why you how you can keep it, but you have to evaluate that data. Well, we had two and a half terabytes of data, and we weren't allowed to touch it because they had shut us down. So it's not that we could just go through and start calling stuff out manually. It was just we couldn't even we weren't even allowed to look at the database, and we just had to press the button and delete it all. So, so if lawyers didn't exist right, uh, and politicians didn't exist, do right. you think we could have prevented 9-11? I, I firmly believe we could. I mean, I look at it more and more. When I, I testified and I just said, you know, I can't speculate to, you know, either way whether we could. But after 20 years and seeing more and more of the effects, you know, of, of, of how things have changed, I think we probably we probably could have had some sort of effect to, to disrupt their operation. Yeah, it seems almost, I mean, and I get trying to protect, uh, right. well, the irony is the USA Patriot Act uh, went farther than anything you guys were collecting. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, that yes and no, because one of the things that, and the, one of the myths about the Patriot Act is it, is it fosters collaboration between organizations. It's, 
that's not really true. It's it's a one-way door. So in, in it, it built pipelines so that folks in intelligence could send their information to law enforcement agencies, but that there was no um, there was no reciprocity. There was no uh, door that allowed uh, law enforcement that was doing collection uh, from from a crime standpoint to send that back over to the intelligence guys. So we were still dead in the water. Even after, I mean, you know, we we had information that that could have warned the USS Cole about uh, the attack in the, in the, uh, off of the coast of Yemen. Uh, in fact, I just um, I'm, I'm friends now with the uh, with the commander uh, Kirk Lippold of the ship. We just we just got together for lunch uh, last week, um, and we you know we've been comparing notes ever since. And this is what I was doing. This is what you were doing. And you know it's it was just the my it's monumentally frustrating. So not you know nine eleven hits and it's a it's a, just a hard day. When the first time I had to go testify was in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. It was in September of two thousand and five. And that's after um, one of our one of the members of our team, Tony Schaefer, and you see him on uh, um, Fox News every so often. Um, he runs uh, he runs a nonprofit organization. Uh, but Tony was our liaison with to the DIA was was instrumental in getting us data that we absolutely needed. And then on the weekends for his reserve duty, he was help he was helping our team do an analysis. So uh, he blows the whistle, and so you know I. I walk into work and I tell you, I tell this to, as a, to all my, anybody who's in intelligence, the, the day a 60 minutes producer calls you and wants to do an interview is not a sign of success in the world of intelligence. So, but I, but I sat down with both the, both the guys and um, it, it was, uh, uh, they were working for Bernard Shaw and they were going to do a, a, an entire expose on what we had done. But what really got was when I finally had to go up to Capitol Hill and I briefed a lot of the staffers, but when I had to go testify the first time, uh, DOD had put, put everybody on a gag order uh, except for myself because I was no longer associated with DOD. So Tony Schaefer was not allowed to uh, brief. One of the contractors was not allowed to uh, uh, testify. So I was really the, the lone witness for the first run. And uh, Arlen Specter was the, the senator. To, uh, um, uh, uh, President Joe Biden was there as a senator. Uh, John Kyle, a couple of others. Uh, um, but the um, as I walked into the room and it was packed wall to wall. I mean, stand you know every seat taken, standing room only. And I had to ask the staffer that I was with. It's like, well, God, who 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 knows about this? Who are all these people? And he said, Look, this is about a third of this room is going to be filled with the media. That's just a given. A third of the room is is the other staffers at other congressmen said, Hey, go go sit on this and take notes. And then the last third are the families of the victims of 9-11. Have fun. Mm -hmm. Good luck. And that was about, that was, again, another moment. It was like just, you know, you, you remember the emotional periods. That was just one of those, just, I just felt horrible. And I went right and, and to sat down and uh, sat down and, and started my test, uh, my testimony. Um, the similar, what, what happened when the, in a few months later, we testified again in front of the House Armed Service Committee. And then I could sit with Tony Schaefer and, and, and the contractor that we were working with. And that's where I met Kirk Lippold because uh, afterwards he introduced himself. And, and as soon as I realized who he was, I, you know, I just, I apologized to him. I just said, look, we failed you. You know, I, I've, I've never had to say that I've failed somebody so miserably with real world intelligence with the loss of life. But I said, but I feel like I failed you. And he goes, you didn't fail me. He's like, and he said, everybody up here failed us. He goes, it's, it's, you know, I'm just, I'm glad that you were here and we've been friends ever since. Yeah. I look, I've been inside the, the, uh, Army and I, I know how uh, the federal government works at some level. Yeah. It is uh, bureaucratic, 
um, it, it is unemotional uh, yeah. and it is swayed by the politics of the silly at times. And yeah, uh, yeah I, so I, I guess for me as, as an American citizen, I, I'd love to think that that sort of silliness, frankly, would never happen again. Do, do you think right. that level of political, legal uh, silliness would allow us to make a similar mistake? Yes, uh, it's it's inescapable. I mean, in, in, with the size of organization you're dealing with, it's it's inevitable, and it's not because uh, I'm an, you know, I, I, I'm not an anti, you know, government, you know, conspiracy theorist or anything like that. But it just it's going to happen. I mean, I've seen some, in anybody that retires from the military, that's why that's why these guys have such great war stories. If you want to talk to anybody who's been in the military, just some of the craziest stuff that you've we, you've seen happen has happened. So. Is you know from from the from the tactical level all the way to the senior level, you know, and I'm and I'm you know right now I work for a great company called SOS International. We do defense contracting. Uh, we have linguists. We do intelligence work. We do base operations. We do IT work, and you know, so I'm still you know I'm still exposed. I'm still in in the in the the community, so to speak. And you, you still learn about things like that, even going on. You know, and and you, you just th- you just thank God. You're just like, man, I can't believe this 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 agency is doing this. And it's just it's inescapable. It's just going to happen. Yeah, it's. Uh, I I don't know how to feel about that. I mean, and I understand. I would have answered the same way. Of course, you're yeah. much more of an expert than I am on that. Uh, so you're a history buff. Uh, what did you teach at American Military University? I, I didn't teach. I was oh. actually doing business development. So. Um, Part one of the roles that I did when I, I left Lockheed, I went to American Military University, and I'm a, and I'm a graduate from there, so my, I got my master's degree in uh, strategic intelligence from them. Um, but uh, I I was on their board of advisors, helping to develop their curriculum for years when I was at Lockheed. It was just something I did on the side, um, and they brought me on board to to foster partnerships with the different agencies and different different parts of the intelligence community. Um, so that we could, for example, there's, you know, every major intelligence agency has a schoolhouse that's attached to it. They, they train, they all train their own people. And so it was going into those different schoolhouses and, and trying to get academic credit. Uh, AMU was the largest, it's really the largest uh, form of higher education uh, and for a while for, in the world for intelligence students. I mean, at one point there was something they, alone, they had 9,000 students several years ago, but um, it was between intelligence, national security, homeland security, and cyber. Um, they had 9,000 students. That's that's a huge, um, there's some colleges that aren't even that large. And that was just this one, just these couple of programs. So that's that was my role there. And I started writing articles uh, for the school blog. Um, and by writing articles, I was then approached, hey, did, did you, would you write a book for us? And this was Cognella Publishing reached out to me. And I was like, you know, I've actually been working this and, and I've got most of the notes from from the classes that I've taught and so it was only natural to write uh, the book that I wrote that came out in 2020. In fact, I just signed a, a contract with them for a second edition. Oh, so nice. we're kicking that effect our, our kickoff is tomorrow <laughs> where we start talking about that one. And I tell you it was you know it was going to work at AMU during the day, coming home and writing all night. And mm. you know that's I think I, I want to estimate it's about from for an academic textbook standpoint, about 2000 hours that I had to put into it uh, to get it done. And an academic textbook, it's not going to get you, you're not writing it for money. You know, you're not, you're writing it to, you know, to, to, to put your imprint on the students as as far and wide as you can. 
Um, so it's and basically the, the book is called Intelligence Operations, Understanding Data, Tools, People and Processes. And when you look at all the literature that's out for their intelligence, there's stuff about spies and spying. That's some fun. That's fun stuff to read. There's the uh, books about the intelligence agencies, the organizations and things like that. There's books about analysis. And then there's a group of books called the I, I call them the I was there book. And it was, you know, I did a tour here. Or I did, you know, from a Vietnam vet or somebody in the Iraq war or Afghanistan or whatever. And those are great. Those are great books, but they have a very myopic viewpoint because it's one person just saying, hey, this is what I did. There's really nothing out there outside of the most boring doctrinal, you know, ugh, that you could read that just really talked about to students and, and to, to learners and intel. It's like, you know, I know how to do analysis. I know how to use, use this tool. I have no idea how I'm supposed to run this entire shop or run or run my organization. And, and that came from as I was training for the Army uh, uh, intelligence analysts, uh, we started getting approached by corporations to train their intelligence analysts. Only they didn't want to call them intelligence analysts. They called them security professionals or whatever. Uh, so we ended up training entire uh, groups. We trained folks from Disney. We yeah. trained folks from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Target, the chain of stores, has about 60 analysts. And they all do the same thing. They're, they're protecting their secret sauce. They're protecting their executives for foreign travel and, and you know any any high any any threats to the organization, and then they're and then they're also doing intelligence, looking at you know um, hot spots around the world. It's, it's like look, we have assets here, we have people, we have stores, we have restaurants or whatever. I mean, we train folks from Yum Foods. They're the parent company for Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, KFC. Um, you know, and they all have you know a reason for corporate security. They all have their own intelligence folks. Uh, we we started training them. And that's why one of the reasons why I wrote the book was not only from a, an academic standpoint, but really to sit as a guide for somebody just like, look, I need to deal with what's what are the right people that I got to have in here? Uh, what are the skill sets? What's the you know the importance of diversity from a not from a racial standpoint or, or you know, a male feels male, female standpoint. But I need diversity in terms of background schools of thought. I need a, a SIGINT person who's you know hardwired for data and then I need a. A more of a human intelligence person who can do analysis on people and individuals and and that kind of thing. And so you got to put those folks together. And that's and all those things I, I try to address as a, as really as a desk side reference more than anything else. Did you enjoy the process of writing? Um, yeah, and sometimes yes, and sometimes no. I guess anybody who who there's there's sometimes I would just struggle on a single paragraph. And then you make your breakthrough and then boom, you're running through the rest of the chapter and everything flows perfectly. I mean, and, and I'm doing that now and I'm, I'm writing fiction on the side and it's, the, it's exactly the same. It's just less, you know, obviously less research, but you know, that you can struggle all day on just getting a conversation down and then everything flows, you know, you break that log jam and then everything flows for a while and then you hit your next log jam. That's just the way it goes. That's, that's when people give up. Yeah, it's probably a lot like uh, working out, trying to improve your strength. You end up plateauing right. at certain levels, and uh, right, and you got to make time for it, just like working out as well. All right, so you were recruited to be part of Case Breakers, and I am <laughs> I am fascinated by everything I've read online about it. Yeah, uh, do you spend a lot of time uh, each it, week on it? It, com it comes and goes. It depends on and what we're working and what's what's going on. I mean the. For the Cooper case, I was approached in oh god 2011. I started, and and the guy who approached me was uh, was Tom Colbert, our team lead, and I had met him 
through uh, um, a joint friend that we had, a, a gal named Shannon Rossmiller. And Shannon Rossmiller was a wonderful individual. I met her uh, from my, and this all came out of my test uh, when I testified the first time. Uh, the lawyer that was uh, offered to represent me and sat next to me during the first, first testimony was a guy named Mark Zade. Um, he's a friend of mine now. Um, he's also the lawyer for the Ukrainian whistleblower that, that caused the impeachment against Trump a few years ago. Mm. Um, but Mark Zaid um, introduced, we, I, I, he introduced me to Tom Colbert. Um, I think we were actually up, up on Capitol Hill having lunch and we met each other. But the, um, um, Tom, his, I was doing just pro bono, just advisory work on the side. I get calls every, every so often from friends like, hey, can you help me with some you know, problem set? And I just do it. It's just, it's just fun to do. And he, just, and he finally called me up and I was in the middle of a, of a proposal that I was working for Lockheed. And he just said, look, I got a guy that I want you to, to I need help going after. And he's, I said, what's his name? He goes, oh, it's D.B. Cooper. And it's like, I thought he was dead. And, I, and and the folks that are in the room around me, they just start looking, you know, they're looking at me like, who's this guy talking to? Uh, but that was our start. And we and, you know, started working the case. And Tom's done so much legwork on it. And uh, what I did is I, as I approached it from the intelligence standpoint. So I was doing a lot of the analysis on that. Uh, I, I I had access to some data mining tools and some visualization tools. So he dumped off a, a 70 page dossier that he had built on the guy we believe was DB Cooper, uh, uh, Robert Rackstraw. And he said, the problem was, look, I'm having a problem. Nobody's reading this. I'm putting it out on desks, you know, at the bureau, I'm putting it at the uh, police stations and nobody's going to read it. It's like, I wouldn't read it, you know, but, but I'm your friend. And I said, let me put it in a visualization. So pictures, you know, picture will say it's a thousand words. So we made this chart and it was, became known as the Cooper chart. And, um, and that all of a sudden, it just, just because we did that, it, it, it marketed our case uh, in a much more stronger fashion. So we were, then we started getting traction for folks that were coming forward. It's like, you know what, I really want to help you with this. Here's another piece. Here's something else. And so that, and that allowed Tom to then, to, you know, he wrote a book, uh, the, the last master outlaws award-winning book that he had put together with Tom Zalazi. And it was just a great, a great way of showing that intelligence can do work. We can adjust the same methods that we use for, you know, normally intelligence is a predictive tool. You're, you know, our job that's different than law enforcement, law enforcement goes to a crime scene and says, all right, here's all the data and this is what happened. The intelligence person is supposed to look at that same data and says, all right, here's what's going to happen in the future in, in, in a nutshell. So, but the same methodologies were complementary. So we started working some of those areas and that, that opened up uh, the first documentary they did for the History Channel, which really uh, we, we were really unhappy with, just because they they it was a two-parter. In the last 15 minutes, they kind of they kind of went after all the data and just kind of you know queried the entire investigation, and probably not to get sued because Rackstraw was still alive. In fact, he did he did sue because he 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 sued us for attempted murder because or, or because he had he had had a heart attack after that that yeah. first piece, and we kind of left we left him alone. I mean we. You know, there are some videos of Tom doing a cold approach that we actually showed him the chart. He very, he's just sat there and plug, plugged through it and verified the chart. But, uh, but that, that one case, I mean, that's, we, we recently came out with a Netflix series. That was a four part of that came out over the summer of this last summer. And what was, what was interesting about that one is that we were, they, you know, they spent the first episode again, it was a great uh, uh, director producer. They were fantastic, but the, um, you know, I, I, I must have interviewed like three or four hours with it, but they did um, they did the first episode kind of saying this is what the case was. And then the second episode, we presented who we thought was the guy. But then the third and the fourth episode, 
were the different naysayers that came and shot holes in their investigation saying, Hey, these guys didn't, you know, they didn't do this. They didn't do this. They, you know, they're, here's the problem. And what, what got me was that none of them had their own solution. They just knew that ours wasn't right. And, you know, th that was a point where, you know, it was, it was frustrating to watch, but then I finally realized that, you know, everybody that's nice, that you know, everybody that, that's shooting holes in our argument has a financially vested interest in this case never being solved. So they have the guy that ran the, the CooperCon uh, in Oregon or Washington State. Uh, you got you had the guy who ran um, the DB Cooper podcast. You had an author of a DB Cooper book. Uh, the, we were disinvited from CooperCon because the little boy who dug up the 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 two hundred fifty thing or no no the, the, I can't remember how much money he found on the banks of the uh, on the side of the river. Uh, he said if you if these guys come I'm not coming. You know, you're not going to have me as a guest. And, and, I, and Tom was pretty upset. I was like, Tom, why would this convention want us to show up to say, you don't need this convention anymore. We've solved it. So, you know, then, but that, you know, again, once, if, when you watch the, that series in that light, it, it makes a heck of a lot of sense for, you know, everybody's got their own agenda. Our only agenda was we wanted to solve. I'm, I've been paid a dime for it. It's just something fun that I like to do on the side and uh, help Tom out or whatever. Tom, Tom's vest, it, you know, Tom's gone in the hole. Uh, tons of money that he's invested into it. So he, you know, I'd like to see him re recover that at, at a minimum. Uh, but again, we've picked up other cases. We picked up the Zodiac killer. We've picked up a, a tip off on a, a, a Jimmy Hoffa location. And that was, that's been pretty wild to work. Um, but the, and then the most, I think the most depressing one though, is the Atlanta child murders case. Cause we're seeing, we got a tip off on that one. And and if everybody remembers that from from early 1979-1980, it was 26 young black men, males that were killed in and around the Atlanta area. The guy that is in jail for it, um, uh, Williams, he was only um, indicted for two of the murders. And so after he was thrown in jail, they, they closed up shop and said, yep, we found the guy. That's it. And then the, the other 24 families don't no longer have closure. So these families even... You know, years and 42 years later, they're still suffering from the effects of that, that, that no, they never really found out what happened to their child. And that one, as we as we dug deeper and deeper in it, I mean, you know, Jimmy Hoffa, we got that disappearance. Um, you know, again, I grew up, grew up outside of Detroit. So they, they actually went to my dad's school and searched the cars from a tip off to the, the trunks of the cars to see if his body was in there. I still remember that as a child. Wow. But the, um, you know, it. it, it could the Cooper case, nobody died. The Zodiac killer case, you know, was several murders um, that were, that were horrific, but you know, the, then I'll, the guy stopped, you know, at a certain point. Um, this one, it's, it's almost like nobody really wanted to, wanted to solve it uh, once they found this guy. And then the more and more we dug into it, the more we found that it's probably not one person that it was more than one. And we're at the point where we actually have somebody who disappeared on us and we may have a fugitive, uh, a fugitive case involved with this as well. And this is a 42 year old case. Yeah. So that, yeah. that perpetrator, if they're guilty, they've got to, well, guilty or not, they've, they've got to be at least in their sixties. Right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly, that's the thing. And even the, the families, I mean, the, the guy who committed the murder, I think it was Walter Williams. I want to remember his first name correctly, but he's Wayne, actually Wayne Williams. Wayne Williams. I'm sorry. You're right. Um, he's calling into the family support groups that are still taking place. And, and he's calling in and said, look, I didn't do it. You know, of course he's in jail for it, but you know, what we think is that he was probably just one person of a ring and his job was to either dispose of the bodies or, or help recruit the kids. 
or something like that. He may not have even have have done any of the murders. He may not have even, uh, you know, it's just it's just gotten more and more detail and just gotten more. You know, you get into the point. I even had uh, an I, I called up an, an old interrogator of mine who's a friend now, and I asked her if you know hey, if we had ever had a chance to go interview Williams, could you do it as an interrogator? She's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'd do it. And then she started looking into the case and called me back two weeks later. She goes, I'm having PTSD. I can't do it. You wow. know, it, it's, it's affecting me too much. And I was like, yeah, well, it's, it's affecting all of us. We're having a, we're having a tough time with this one. So, mm. but the, I mean, but the other ones, it's just, you know, we're, we're doing some really crazy stuff with the, with the Hoffa case. And we got a tip off on that location and the, the location that we found or that we were, you know, I had to do some imagery analysis comparing uh, photos of overhead images and maps, you know, overlaying them on top of each other to try to pinpoint the location. Cause you know, where, where they think he's buried has been, has been changed radically. And we got to the point where we hired a um, ground positioning radar team to go out to the location. It's, it's paved over. And we dressed them up in, uh, I think they went to Staples and got some, you know, some uh, um, you know, like construction gear or whatever. So it looked like they were city workers. So we wouldn't get any, get any issues when in the location they were at. And they came back and said, look, the, everything that you, that when you pinpointed the entire area where you said to look is hard pet clay, at least six, 12 feet down, except for the specific area that Eric said to that were, were if he was buried, it was going to be in that location. So that's, that's one that like, you know, nobody wants to open up another Al Capone's vault, but that one, even if, the, if, if nothing was there, the entire story is a fantastic story as we're, as we're laying these out of, of us doing this investigation. It's just such a great thing. It's such a great thing to be involved with uh, and to go after. And that's why, again, my poor kids are just like, you know, dad's talking to this, you know, Tom's calling dad. At, you know, we, we worked at night. He's like, man, it's he, just some of the wildest conversations I'm overhearing. You know, you're some of the stuff that you're saying, you know, you're talking to each other about. <laughs> it's just, he was like, I, I would not, I would not know it unless I knew you, you know, you were my dad. So, <laughs> <laughs> a couple of quick hit questions on each one of these. Yes, so, DB Cooper, how confident are you that Rackstraw uh, was the, was DB? Oh, Cooper? I'm, I'm, I'm at the point now, and I joke about it, but I say, look, if he didn't do it, OJ did it. I mean, we had, we had 180 pieces of evidence that we submitted to the FBI and never heard a thing. We had his DNA that we submitted. We had, um, we had his back, you know, his, his, um, uh, his family members talking about, you know, just look, this, he's probably, he's probably the guy. And the biggest thing was like that, that, that really keyed it in was that his, this guy's entire life had been one grifting operation after another from the time he was a, Helicopter pilot in Vietnam on the side started flying for Air America, which is a, a CIA operation for resupply. Uh, and then we think that he flew for around the agency again. And so when when the Bureau, you know, you know, we always get our man. When the Bureau finds and they find their man, they 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 run into the 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 CIA and the CIA is like, look, you can't touch him, he's ours. Not till we can unclass, you know, declassify what, you know, the work that he had done with it. And he wasn't a, a an agent or anything who was properly trained. He was just an asset they relied upon to do, you know, to, to do flights for him. And so there's that's one, one part of that, the, the DB Cooper documentary, they brought in uh, Joanna Mendez, who was the, the chief of uh, disguise for the CIA. And I, and I know, and I know Joanne, I met her several times, a uh, great gal. Um, and she's basically said, look, he, he couldn't be CIA because he doesn't talk like CIA. And, and I was like, but he wasn't, he was a pilot. 
You know, that's what he did. He sold tile on the side. We've got so many other goofy things. I mean, he was in Iran before the revolution. As soon as he came back, he was arrested on, oh God, other, I can't remember the other charges. I mean, and then he, he, he faked an illness and an injury where he had to show up in court in a wheelchair when he was, you know, it was a, a complete fabrication of his physical state. So there's just, you know, so many different things. And we got to the point where we, you know, we're tying him to the, as a murder suspect and his, to his uh, stepfather. Mm. You know, his body was found in a shallow grave out in his nearest his property, um, uh, you know, some, you know, sometime after. So he was being looked at for so many different things. This Cooper thing fits his MO because it was just one chapter of so many different things that he was involved with. Um, I mean, his first wife called him, uh, called him, his nickname for his first wife was Bullshit Bob. <laughs> Yeah. She never, because she's like, I never, never believed anything he said. <laughs> did she, did she have that nickname before they got married? Uh, no, I don't know. I, no, I don't know. But, but, but again, it's, you know, he fits. I mean, we, you know, we've, we've brought in folks, we brought in forensic experts, we brought in behavioral uh, uh, profilers. I mean, this, he fits the mold of a narcissistic sociopath, where is if, if he's talking to you, he's trying to manipulate you. I mean, that's, that was just his MO over and over and over. So, uh, you had mentioned with the Zodiac killer, that the guy you believe was the Zodiac killer, he yeah. stopped and, yeah. and he lived for quite some time afterwards. Yeah. Why do you, why did he stop? He got married. Wow. <laughs> the guy's name was uh, Gary Francis post. And one of the things that the things that we had tagged him with is that he was an air force mechanic. He had a, a special pair of boots called wing Walker boots, uh, that the air force mechanic used. And that was present at some of the crimes we have, um, Right now, we're at the point where we're, we're seeking aid to get ballistic studies. We have shell casings from the weapons he had owned. He, uh, these crimes are committed with a 9mm Luger and a 22. Uh, we have 9mm and 22 shell casings from, uh, from his house. Uh, we have other DNA evidence, uh, so we're trying to get those tested. It does Obviously, that costs money, which we, you know, our, our group doesn't have. Um, but the... Uh, one of the things we found with this pattern and we, and we have him tied to other, some, some murders we're, we're looking at that weren't really originally attached to him. There were some, you know, some other murders that were committed uh, before 1966. And, uh, but where we think he stopped is that he did get married and he, and he married into uh, um, a, a mother with, and he had an instant stepson who was a teenager and he became a mentor for that boy and his friends, kind of like he formed his own posse of folks that he had almost complete control over. Mm. Uh, and so that what that became his new outlet uh, of of controlling them in that way. So you see with the you know a psychological profile of of him is he, he, he tended to tie people up or just to attack couples or whatever in uh, but that was part of his being in control from a psychological standpoint. Um, killing the cab driver, um, that kind of thing. And so once he had somebody he could permanently be in control, and this is just my, I'm not a psychologist, but this is just my own assessment belief is that he, the killing stopped because he had, he had a radical change to his own lifestyle. So Rackstraw not being uh, arrested and convicted, I, I get the whole uh, yeah. thing with the CIA, yeah. but did, did uh, San Fran, PD or whatever the jurisdiction was that should have been uh, investigating and, and eventually arresting him. Do they just not have the resources to do what you guys have done? Well, you know, here's, and here's the thing for, you know, with the FBI, the, the same team that was investigating him. And this is, 
you know, they had folks in the seventies. I mean, they had identified them 77 and 78 and then the, and then the trail went cold. And that's, I mean, and part of what, as soon as we ran into the, the possibilities, like, look, we're getting into some classified areas. We stopped, we made a conscious effort. Like, look, we're not digging into this. This is, you know, we are investigators, but we're not going to, we're not leaking any classified information. We're not going to cause any disruption. We're not going to, you know, we're Patriots first, so we're not going to do that. And so we stopped on him, but, um, we, you know, for the, for the Bureau and for the, for their, you know, the, the agents that have to work that, that the, the group that was investigating a lot of these cold cases are the same groups that are in charge of missing and exploited children. What's your priority, a, an active case of a missing child or some old fart who didn't kill anybody, you know, only, only ran some $250,000, um, you know, parachuted out. Nobody saw him again. Nobody was killed. Nobody was hurt. You know, is, is that your priority or is it, a, you know, a more urgent case, you know, with, with a child? Yeah. You know, yeah, that one, that's easy to answer. Yeah, super easy. So uh, Atlanta murders, the child murders, and, and they were mostly under 18 is yes. my recollection. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's, what's the working theory if there's, if there's a group that is in some sort of enterprise? What was the enterprise? Mm-hmm. Do you guys have theories about that? We we do. I don't want to get into that one because okay. there's that one's still kind of active. The yep. um, um, we do believe that. I mean, we had a witness that says they were shown one of the bodies, and it was the and we believe the the one body that they found was the one body they that they never found because it dis, disappeared after that. Um, but the but the 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 witness that we that we are uh, that came forward to us uh, was it was either ten years old or thirteen years old at the time. Um, we're investigating into that piece. Um, one of the members who we think was in cahoots with uh, Williams uh, ended up dying in jail himself several years later. So it's just, it's, it, I mean, there's so many, there's so many dead ends to this and there's so many unanswered variables that were added in there. Um, not to mention any problems of, of, of a racial aspect that is tied into that. I mean, it's, um, you know, Williams is African-American, you know, one of the other folks that we're looking at is, is also, um, there is a, a, another person that we have witness statements and, um, images, but as, as a white guy, that was probably a friend. And so it's, you know, the, we're not trying to s- solve it from anything other than, you know, one, we want to solve the case and two, we still want to help these families out. I mean, I, and that's the thing. It's like, I don't, like, I, if I don't make a dime off of it, I, I don't care. I mean, who cares? It's I, I'd rather, I'd rather, you know, if that's the way, you know, like, like my father, he's raising three boys. I mean, I raised two kids, uh, but now that they're, they're grown out of the house, this is what I, this is what I want to do to help other folks. Yeah. You're turning over stones that you and the team are are turning over stones that have not been turned over before. Do you, do you worry about personal safety at all? Um, Yes and no. I mean, the, the, a lot of these, you know, a lot of these cases are so old, they're not even really cold cases anymore. They're historical cases. I mean, good Lord, Roxos, it was 50 years. I mean, the dude was working in a, in a shipyard. He's, he's, you know, I don't, he's not going to do anything at, the, at that age. Same, you know, with, um, with Hoffa, the, uh, you know, that case again is so old that your witnesses, most of the witnesses are not even alive also. In fact, I'm in fact, the group that we're looking at, they're, they're not, there's not a single person that's alive that was involved with it. And, and talking to a friend of mine in the bureau, he, he finally uh, finally came, he finally gave me the goes, Let me just give you a tip. The guys who killed Hoffa don't know where he's buried. 
You know who knows where he's buried? The guys who buried him know where he's buried. And that's it. And yeah. that's, and that's, but that's the tip off that we received was uh, from somebody who, who was involved with that, uh, who, who says he was involved with that portion. And again, he's, he's no longer alive anyway. So we're going through a, a family member. Uh, do you find it exhilarating to, to do this kind of work? It's, it's more of, um, I mean, as an, as an Intel analyst, it's, it's more of that kind of thing. I'm still a huge gamer. So I get my, you know, we get our fixes in certain ways. Some people like doing, you know, skiing and driving cars and that kind of thing. Um, I am a huge gamer. I'm, I'm more of a nerd than Henry Cavill is. I, I play Warhammer 40K. I have the miniatures. I have thousands of miniatures down in my basement. Um, I've, I've played every kind of, you know, boardgamegeek.com is one of my favorite websites. So I'm, I'm doing the board games. I'm doing the miniatures. I'm doing online gaming. All of that peaks a strategy and problem solving that just that that's part of your hobby and just and just the enjoyment of it this is one of those things you know the the the, the trend now of escape rooms folks like going to there because they like solving problems you know uh, this is it's it's similar to that it's like look you're just going to get a scant piece of information let's start digging in and see what we can find that's a great answer uh i'm going to totally change speeds on you and ask sure. a question that we ask most of our guests towards the the end all right you're a talk show host uh, one time only, uh, you get to invite three or four guests. The fourth guest depends on whether you like uh, the the kind of guests that uh, I'll ask you about. So your four guests are one male, one female, okay, uh, one musical act, uh, and okay. then if you're in the stand up comedy, a stand up comedian, these uh, guests can be alive or dead. They can be okay. famous or not famous, uh, personal relationship with you or not. Right. Um, Literally anybody you can try, you can go for entertainment. You can go for thought provoking. You can go for right. whatever you want to go for. Cause it's right. your one time show. Who right. are your guests? Well, I mean, I think for, uh, for a band, I don't, I, I, I've only been to one concert in my entire life and it was, and it, it, it was the police synchronicity tour in 1983 or something like that. But my, my band would be rush. I would, right. I would invite the members of rush to sit with them because, and part of it is just the, the way, you know, Neil Pert, although he's, he, he's, he left us in 2020, um, was the, was his lyrics. I mean, obviously he was, he was touched by a lot of the same things that I was growing up with, uh, with role-playing and the Lord of the Rings and, and, you know, historical, you know, classical fantasy novels, things like that. Um, for the, uh, what was the other one? Was it, was it a male and a female? Male, male female, and then stand-up com comedian, if you are in. Oh, you know, stand-up comedian is easy, Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, that's, that he was. He's kind of like been the, his dry humor has been my set of humor, you know, immensely. I mean, it's just fantastic. Um, uh, the, he, he had the series, what comedians in cars getting coffee. Uh, I'd love to do that. Um, what, I don't drink coffee, but whatever, you know, just uh, that would be a great hangout. Um, uh, male and female. I mean, I would always lean toward historical figures. So I would say from a, from a female standpoint, I, I am very big into medieval. Um, I, I would love to sit with Joan of Arc and I, I think as a, as a historical figure to really understand, you know, her vision, what she saw. I mean, I'm, I am fairly religious, uh, with, with my, since, since from my upbringing, all of my brothers, since my father passed away, we all took the religion of our, of our spouses. Mm -hmm. uh, so I converted to Catholicism, uh, when my daughter, when my daughter went through a confirmation, um, and then I think the male, and I, and I you know, it, I mean, it's a bad answer, but 
I, if I could have an hour to sit down with somebody, I would do anything to sit down with my dad for another hour. That's a fantastic. And then, and then, and then aside from him, it would be honestly my, I have a, I'm looking at a, a portrait of him right here in front of, you know, another side of my office is George Washington. I mean, just to, to pick their brain and understand them. Those, there's so many folks that I would, that, that I would just love to sit with. I mean, just from a tactical standpoint, if I could sit with Napoleon Bonaparte, I would, you know, just, there's so many folks that you, when you read about them, you want to know everything that there is about them, you know, their, their thought processes, you know, all of that, Martin Luther, there's just, you know, every, everything in between, but, it, but almost everyone is somebody who had an effect, somebody who had a test and somebody who had not overcome that. Yeah. Those are uh, the most intriguing historical people and certainly right. the most interesting from right. my perspective. I like, uh, it's true for you as well. Sure. Look, can we uh, close with you? Uh, tell me about telling me about your family, your immediate family. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, I'm I, I live in Northern Virginia. The um, the great thing about it is like when I settled here out of the army, and um, as soon as I did, I called my mom from Michigan, and she moved five blocks down the street. Uh, and then my other brother, and, uh, my middle brother, in, in the um, as when he was in Secret Service. Uh, he moved into the neighborhood and then we got and then my oldest brother was in the marine corps station the pentagon in fact on 9 11 uh, my brother was in the wedge that was hit he was just in the inner ring so the plane never made it to him uh wow. my middle brother was at the white house uh working and that was the, that was the uh one of the targets so um we have been fortunate to live within a mile of each other my mom finally moved to the villages in florida um there's there's some wild stuff going on down there let me tell you but the uh um, it was, it is great that our, our cousins and our nephews could all, you know, could all grow up next to each other, you know, as brothers and sisters. Um, my daughter, my son is, uh, he is a st uh, graduate student at Georgetown. Uh, he's get, trying to get his master's and PhD in pharmacology. Uh, my, my daughter is, uh, entering a, a nursing school here in Northern Virginia. Um, she is the only girl in our family in 60 years. So, so <laughs> We've only had, my mom only had boys. My brother's only has boys. You know, I, she's, a, you know, when we, I finally had a girl, I was like, oh, any Smith can have a boy. It's, you know, it takes a little bit of effort to have a girl, but she's, she's the only girl. And I, I feel for her because it's all the family get together. It's all the boys doing boy stuff. And, uh, and, and then my wife is a, um, a librarian for a middle school out in Fauquier County. Okay. And just, just, just loving what she's doing. We're, we're at a point in our life where we are, you know, the, the amount of time, again, our, our volunteerism uh, turned into time. Um, you know, we've, we've done everything from Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. Um, I used to go into the high school before COVID, uh, our local high school. I used to teach military history to all the ninth graders. Mm. And in the fall, and I would use miniatures to do it. And so the fall, I would teach the Battle of Kadesh between the uh, Pharaoh Ramses, Egyptians, and the, and the Hittite Empire. And then in the spring, I would go back and I would teach the Battle of Agincourt. And at that battle, they knew who was there by by name. So I would hand out cards to the students as they came in. They'd have to find out by the end of the class whether they lived, died, or or were captured, or or whatever. And so, I mean, that's just I love doing that. And so it's um, COVID really killed killed a lot of those efforts. But the um, um, again, in a nutshell, that's that's what we do. It's like I my wife says I have four jobs. I have my regular day job. I'm have the book that I'm rewriting. I have the fiction book, and then I have the cold case work. And if I'm not doing that, I'm spending time with her, or I'm or I'm playing, being a gaming nerd. You have a uh, busy, sounds like uh, rich That's, life. Eric. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's it's you know it's not been not always been pretty, but uh, we're, we're I just thank God that I'm I'm here where I am now.
Well, Eric, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I, I'm grateful to uh, Pete for hooking us up. Sure. And, uh, I would love it. Can you hang on for a second after I stop the recording? Yeah, absolutely. And anybody can, you know, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. If they got any other questions, they want to just hit me directly. That's fine. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.